does, I guess, is there a time length? Like, do you help women or people who have been trafficked? Do you help them for a certain time length? And then you say, okay. Go with God. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, as Rachel mentioned earlier, um, we do have two safe homes. And one of those um, is called Blossom House, which is our long-term program. In terms of the in terms of the survivors that we see every day, um, those are our residential clients, the mm-hmm. ones who uh, live with us, the ones that we have 24/7 staffing for. So that program is somewhere in between 10 to 12 months for them. That can definitely vary. Some of our survivors are moms and may have children who are in the DCS system or have um, someone else has custody of their child and they're working to mm-hmm. to get that back when they graduate. So um, so it can vary based on kind of what what their goals are. So part of uh, part of our system of case management is that each survivor that we have has an individualized care plan. There uh, is no stereotypical trafficking survivor. It can be anything from uh, being sold by her mother from the age of six to to two weeks of trafficking in a new city and calling and self-reporting to law enforcement on a sexual assault. and everything in between. There is no best practice for serving human trafficking victims. Um, It hasn't been uh, a service area that's been around for that long. Um, It's pretty Mm -hmm. much the early 2000s. Only in our residential capacity do we kind of have that 10 to 12 month Mm -hmm. uh, limit because there's so much uh, structure in having a a home where Mm -hmm. survivors live, but when it comes to residential or non-residential clients, be they minors or um, or adults, our mandate is pretty much to serve them for as long as mm-hmm. they want services. So the ideal is always working towards um, independent sustainability, right. but our mandate is to is to stick with them as, as long as they're willing to have us and to stick around longer than anybody else will. Really, when you think about what has led to trafficking, oftentimes there's combination of so many vulnerability factors so whether it was environmental factors of there's a high justification for porn in a community Um, and then there's a social factor in the individual factor and all all of there's so many different factors that kind of basically combine together to to lead someone on the road of trafficking that service can look so different and as she mentioned probably in the home for about 10 to 12 but even after that still making sure that it's not um, go and be great it's a matter of not only like helping them transition into independence hopefully getting a job learning how to be sustainable potentially getting custody of children back and all of these other things but then even going forward how do you continue to continue to create a community and making sure that they know because what we say that we do in our survivor empowerment is to decrease vulnerabilities and so if someone came to us and um, even if they only stay in services for say three months but when they got here they had not ever gone beyond eighth grade and they don't have access to their driver's license and they're not on any insurance and somehow in three months we get them through a GD class we get them driver's license we get them on health insurance then Mm -hmm. the next time that someone comes up on them and says you're you're nothing and you won't have any any help or people one people believing you or two you don't have any other 
any other tricks up your sleeve to say, no, I, I now have my GED. Mm-hmm. And so I, it'll be harder for someone to now take advantage because she does have more supports and she has less vulnerabilities than she did before. Um, and then the other idea is just that sustainable support system. So even this week, we uh, had a call from a client that we first started serving in 2012. Um, she's a client from the T-Rex Yarbrough case, the federal case, a super, super violent pimp. And we got to walk with her for a few years uh, from 2012 to about 2014. And then she was pretty sustainable for a while. And then... Um, she came back in asking for some help with some custody issues and I think 2016 and 2017 and now she's been sustainable but recently she was in a really bad car accident and so she was hospitalized for a long time she's having to learn how to walk and so she just mm-hmm. reached out again saying can can you guys be in my corner again mm-hmm. and so just creating a rapport um, and making sure that the survivors know that no matter what the reality of all too often what has led them down their road is the people that they should have been able to support and to to rely on for support weren't reliable, Mm -hmm. whether it be their parents or their school administrators or um, all the other kinds of supports that as children we grow up thinking are just a given. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we want to enter into their lives and make sure that they know going from here on out, if you're wondering who has my back, Hmm. we do. Carrie, you said that there is no stereotypical victim of trafficking. So is there a stereotypical trafficker? That would be again, no. (laughs) Um, A lot of times we would like to think so um, because uh, having the bad people in one category means that you can get away from them quicker. But there's T-Rex Yarbrough, the uh, pimp that Rachel just mentioned, um, is who a lot of us want to thank. Um, the stereotypical idea, very violent. Um, he was an African-American from Memphis. Memphis. Actually in Bartlett, but yep. I think we were talking earlier before the podcast about um, another trafficker, also from Bartlett, Kayla Bray, who was a 19-year-old, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, senior in high school. She had had a history of being exploited herself and um, then learned that she could utilize those same methods methods to exploit others and so she uh, took a 16 and a 17 year old girl, um, invited both of them down to a water park in Texas and uh, drugged them and trapped them. So there's uh, unfortunately no uh, category of bad people that we can uh, alienate and blame. We definitely find traffickers of all ethnicities and um, genders. One of the vulnerabilities both for victims and for traffickers is going to be substance abuse. Um, So it doesn't always have to be an exchange of dollars Mm -hmm. for a sex act. in many cases, when there have been mothers who have been exploiting exploiting their children, uh, it can often be to feed an addiction. Um, that can be that can be for other family members, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that kind of TV style, incredibly lucrative business for for a minor. Any sex act exchange for something of value, be that drugs, be that school supplies be that, a room to stay for the night, Mm. any of that counts as sex trafficking. It doesn't have to be $100 uh, for 
for an act in a hotel room. So, which is not, not what TV shows us, it's not what the movie shows us, it's not what we think, but it is representative of plenty of the cases that we've served, that money doesn't necessarily have to be involved. Yeah. So that that's something that people typically don't expect and is can be a factor in why traffickers can be so diverse. Okay, and so, because I wanted to know, you talked about sex trafficking and there's also labor trafficking and I also saw organ trafficking. Mm-hmm. And so are what are the things, like? Are, is there a common thread with the cases that you deal with here in Memphis, or not necessarily in Memphis, but in this area of a certain type of trafficking? Sex trafficking is going to be the majority of trafficking. It's definitely the majority of our cases, Um, but it's also, uh, most studies show on on the subject that sex trafficking is just the majority of trafficking. Labor trafficking is absolutely out there. I think that um, locally, and this is across uh, national and even international trends, labor trafficking just doesn't come, it doesn't, it identifies less than sex trafficking. Plus, it's harder for law enforcement to really intervene on the front end. So whereas sex trafficking, the nature of it is someone is actively being sold. And so someone is being displayed to be a bought product. And so then law enforcement can intervene a little bit easier. So someone, if law enforcement does online Uh, operations and they're scouring through online ads trying to look to see is this a juvenile is it not a juvenile have we seen this person there's now um, computer software that kind of that can track online ads whether the same ad is popping up in Memphis and Atlanta and Nashville and uh, Knoxville and then back to Memphis and so if they start seeing these trends in the computer software that the same person or the same online ad is popping up in these places Mm -hmm. then it can identify that but the nature of labor trafficking, they're hidden. Like they're mm-hmm. just not out there. And then oftentimes too, someone that is labor trafficking dra- trafficked has a great distrust of law enforcement being on their side. Potentially they're illegal or even if they're here legally, uh, if they are here legally, then potentially where they came from in the country that they came from. It's just going to be a lot a lot more immigrants involved in labor trafficking for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so there was probably a lot more fraudulent contractual agreements that got them to where they are, and they don't know the difference. It's not their culture. It's not their language. Um, they, Who knows how law enforcement and whether the law was on their side from the countries that they came from and how to know whether they can identify and be safe in that process. Mm-hmm. You are, you guys are involved with the Tennessee Anti-Slavery Alliance. Mm-hmm. So tell me about that. So I mentioned before that Tennessee mm-hmm. has the state model of the single points of contact. And so our agencies were identified as the points of contact for Department of Children's Services and the TBI. And then those agencies, we combine together to create a partnership among one another to make sure that we can actually all be using the same language, the same form of systems. Um, if a girl that's recovered in Knoxville needs services in Memphis, et cetera, then the four of our agencies as the single points of contact actually have our own partnership to make sure that we can collaborate to the best of our ability every day. So as far as warning signs, Tell me about those, because the situations I'm thinking about, there was a case in the news probably in the last several years, or not several years, one or two years, 
where a flight attendant she saw that she suspected that um, someone was being trafficked and that turned out to be true and then there was another case with um, Senator John McCain's widow Cindy McCain she thought that she saw a situation of trafficking and that it wasn't true and so how can I as a as a regular person just look for warning signs like what and what to do and what not to do you know in situations like that right some of the red flags that we like to uh, we try to share dependent upon if you're if you're just seeing somebody walking down the street want to know is that they're not always gonna be wearing a cocktail dress and heels um, again it's it's smart people uh, running this industry and they want to keep want to keep their girls making money it's gonna be much more likely that they're going to uh, dress in such a way that doesn't necessarily um, bring that much attention. One thing that traffickers will do is similar to the era of slavery, they'll brand their girls. If, if a pimp has multiple girls, then it's called a stable, which is another way to dehumanize. It's an animalistic uh, parallel. But he will tattoo them either with his name, with something explicit, with a barcode uh, to to symbolize that they're his. Having having that tattoo is something, whenever we do trainings with medical providers, for those who, who do intakes or get to see get to see a potential victim's body, that's something that we always always point out to look for. Most victims are uh, told by their pimp that they're not permitted to make eye contact with other men. It's a hyper jealous mandate that they that they have. So um, just having just having the eyes down, not being able to actually look at the cashier if they're if they're at a transaction, that can be a sign that uh, they're just not permitted to look at other men. If it's one thing we point out with juveniles, if there's a girl particularly who comes from a low-income home and suddenly starts to have an influx of really nice things if her nails are suddenly done or she has she has new hair or she has really nice jeans or a cute bag um, that previously no one no one in her family would be able to consistently afford mm -hmm. that is often a common sign of the grooming process of the pimp boyfriending in and giving her a lot of nice things mm -hmm. um, you know taking her out making her feel pretty so that he can make her believe that she loves him before he turns around and says, now you owe me for all the nice things that I did for you. So those, uh, those are some off the, off the top of my head. At least when, when you're um, looking and maybe having that check in your spirit. What we, what we always offer is the Tennessee hotline. It's an anonymous call and law enforcement can track the GPS in your phone. You don't have to stay in any location. You can just call, say what you've seen, and um, all of our clients have said we'd way rather you call and be wrong mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, get law enforcement some exercise mm -hmm. is, the, is the worst case scenario. So mm -hmm. the uh, number's on our website, but it's uh, 1-855-55-TNHTH. We don't advise for civilians to approach what they think might be victims because you never know where their trafficker is. That can get them in a lot of trouble to interact with somebody that they're not supposed to be interacting with because because those approaches can result in physical harm to them. We advise just call, um, don't approach if you think if you think that she she or he could be a victim because our first priority is to keep them as safe as possible and so to send to better to send those who are trained to deal with the situation. But how probable is it that we would even encounter, you know, if I'm just out shopping or 
just going about my daily life and, in and possibly encountering a, a trafficking situation. It's directly correlated to uh, the level of education that you want. Um, I think for for those of us working here at RestoreCore, um, the way that we drive around Memphis, just the lenses, the glasses that we have on all the time, make us a lot more likely to see situations. It's hard to say for the average person, for the average person if they don't necessarily know what they're looking for or what, what places are common tracks or um, any of those pieces, then, uh, then it can look like it's underground or it doesn't happen. Continuous education, I think, is the best is the best recommendation. You know, we're happy to come to come speak around Memphis and around the 21 counties that we serve, which are on our website.